I'm not sure when it, when it became popular, but prequels are all the rage these days. It's a good way, I suppose, for a franchise like Star Wars to stretch out the story and uh, make more money. A prequel is essentially the story before the story. It's the events and circumstances that prepare the way for the main event. In a way, the entire Old Testament functions a little bit like a giant prequel to the main attraction, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. But if we were to identify one story within the story that builds anticipation and prepares the way for the birth of the Messiah, I can think of no better story to tell than that of Zechariah, Elizabeth, and their miracle child, John. God's gracious work in their life is a sign that God is on the move. He's preparing the world for the birth of his son. Zachariah and Elizabeth, what do we know about these characters? A few things. Firstly, we know that they lived during the reign of Herod the Great. In 37 BC, the Roman Senate installed Herod as ruler over Judea. Herod had been working towards this end for some time. He was something of a political opportunist. And when they made him king, he wasted no time working to see his political dreams become reality. Herod was called Herod the Great because he was a great builder. He built coliseums, he built temples, aqueducts, fortresses. Some of these things are still functioning today. I walked beside one of Herod's aqueducts and there is still water flowing through it. Arguably, Herod's favorite building project was a fortress he built called the Herodian. You can't, this building has eroded away, but you can imagine at the top of that hill, there's this uh, circular fortress tower castle thing uh, that would be gleaming white, just covered with limestone, just shining like the sun. Um, Rumor has it that Herod had this mountain moved just a little bit and elevated just a little bit so that he could have a better view of Bethlehem and Jerusalem in the distance. So this guy had vision. He had a plan, and he went for it. Now this, uh, this building, the Herodian, is found in the Judean countryside or the hill country just south of Bethlehem. So this is the area where um, Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. They lived in the shadow of the hill that Herod moved. So they didn't live in the best of times, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Herod was everywhere. Signs of Roman occupation were everywhere. But the work in the presence of the Lord at this time was hard for the people to see. These years, the intertestamental years, the period between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, are sometimes even referred to, maybe rightly or wrongly, as the silent years. We're not getting new revelations from God. There's not very many prophets that are being raised up to speak a word to God's people. Where is the Lord? The people were asking themselves. What's he doing about this Herod guy, this Roman occupation? Where, where is the Lord? Will he remember his covenant with us? Will he come and be gracious to us again? 
But even though the times were tough, Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't stray in their devotion to the Lord. Luke highlights their impeccable spiritual pedigree and moral standing. Zechariah was a priest in the division of Abijah, and Elizabeth was the descendant of Israel's first high priest, Aaron. Together they were blameless, observing all the Lord's commands. But while Zechariah and Elizabeth were full of righteousness, there was still an emptiness in their life. They couldn't get pregnant, and they were well along in years. I'm sure they asked all the heart-wrenching questions that are so common with couples who want children but can't have them. Why us? Why doesn't God give us the reward of children? Did we do something wrong? Are we being punished in some way? What, why? What's going on? Some of you know firsthand the, the sorrow that Elizabeth and Zechariah must have felt. Childless, childlessness in the Old Testament was generally seen as a reproach, a sign that God's favor wasn't upon the family. It was a situation that brought about shame. Elizabeth's barren womb would have been the talk of the town. But as Luke makes abundantly clear, this couple's barrenness has nothing to do with sin or punishment. Rather, God was setting them apart for his special purpose, incorporating their struggle into his drama of salvation. It all happened one day when Zechariah was at work with his division, fulfilling his priestly duties in the temple. Lots were cast before the evening sacrifice, as was the custom, and Zechariah's name was chosen to light the incense on the altar. Now, the altar of incense was in the holy place in the temple. This was the room just uh, outside of the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant resided. And for a priest like Zechariah, in the lineage of Abijah, lighting the altar of incense was about as special a task as he could ever hope to perform. And this might have been the only time in his ministry where he had the honor of entering the holy place. The altar of incense was an altar on which priests would light incense, obviously. Uh, the aroma was pleasant, and the smoke that ascended up to heaven was meant to be a symbol of the prayers of the people ascending from earth up to the presence of God. In fact, what was happening inside the holy place during the evening sacrifice was reflected outside in the temple court. Worshippers would have gathered during this time of the evening sacrifice. It's kind of like a time of evening prayer, really. And they would have been praying. So as the smoke is going up, so are the prayers of the people. That reality is reflected in the holy, of, in the holies, holy place. What were they praying for, I wonder? Personal matters, I'm sure. But most likely, they'd also be praying for the liberation of Israel, praying for the long season of Israel's barrenness to be filled up with the birth of the anointed Messiah. It's likely that Zechariah was praying as well as he carried out his duties. And it's there in the midst of the prayer service that God shows up. This is the first instance in a larger motif found in Luke's account of Jesus' life in the ministry and the ministry of the early church. It's believed that Luke both wrote both Luke and 
the acts. So those books are meant to go together. And the motif is this, that whenever people or Jesus is found praying or people are gathered for prayer, often significant things happen in Luke and in Acts. At Jesus' baptism, for instance, Jesus is praying. Prior to choosing the 12 disciples, Jesus prays. When Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, he is transfigured as he is praying. And then in Acts, the Spirit descends upon the apostles while, while they are praying. Prayer and the mission of God. As the incense goes up, the power comes down. Does one cause the other? Does prayer force God's hand into action? No. Sometimes God's answer to our prayers is no. And sometimes the timing isn't quite right. But the truth remains, when he does work, he always seems to work through his people as they gather for prayer. While they were praying, the angel Gabriel appeared at the right hand of the altar. Zechariah, of course, is petrified, as any normal human being would be, when, su when surprised by a visit from what is basically a general in the Lord's heavenly army. I'm not sure why we picture angels as sweet little Caucasian girls with halos and wings. Gabriel is no pushover. In the battle of, over sin and death, he's on the front lines. But Gabriel has not come to pick a fight with Zechariah. He's come to share good news, news that will bring changes to Zechariah and Elizabeth's Elizabeth lives, news that will change the nation and bring joy to the people. Do not be afraid, the angel says to Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. Gabriel then goes on to describe what kind of man John will be and what he will do. For those of you who've been with us throughout the fall, one of the interesting things said about John is that the Holy Spirit will fill him from birth, and then it, the text says this, and that he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. We just finished a series on Elijah. And last week, Pastor Brittany talked about this passing on of the prophetic mantle, the prophetic anointing. Elijah was anointed for ministry. He had the, the, the spirit of God was upon him. And then Elisha, that spirit was passed. The, the mantle, the prophetic call was passed on to Elisha. And Elisha carried on with the anointing. So basically what the angel is saying here is that Zechariah and Elizabeth's child will be a continuance of this great tradition of anointed servants. He will carry on the prophetic call in the present he will speak for the Lord. He will call people to return to God and to make ready a way for his return. I don't want to spend too much time uh, talking about John today because he's going to get his own Sunday in a few weeks. But what I want, to, I want you to see about him today, other than his connection with Elijah and that anointing, is that John's birth and coming is the fulfillment of an Old Testament promise. In the last book of the Bible, Malachi, we read this. Behold, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then these are the last verses of the Old Testament. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes 
He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So there, that, that verse is pretty much quoted by the angel in, in Luke 1. So that's how the Old Testament closes. And then, roughly 400 years later, the angel Gabriel appears before Zechariah with a message that contains the fulfillment of that promise. Clearly, this is a sign that God is on the move. By this time, Zechariah's fears have subsided. He's perhaps even a little elated by the news he's just heard. But he's also not quite ready to receive this word as fact. How can I be sure of this? He asked the angel. I mean, look at me. I'm an old man and my, my wife is well along in years. Gabriel's response to Zechariah's request for assurance is a little humorous, I think. I like to imagine um, Gabriel shushing Zechariah, putting out his finger and just putting it to his lips like, shh, you foolish mortals, always looking for assurance. I've come from the right hand of God. I've spoken this word. It will come to pass. You want a sign? This will be a sign to you. You're not going to be able to ask any more foolish questions until the day this word is fulfilled. So a little bit of a, a funny moment of just a shh. You just wait and see. Trust. Trust the Lord. When Zechariah finally emerges, everyone knows that something special has just taken place, but Zechariah can't speak of it. He can only grunt and mumble and try to make signs with his hands. And I'm just like trying to imagine him like, you know, like trying to like make the signs. There's going to be a baby. This baby is going to be important to me, to you, to everyone. When Zechariah's week of service was complete, Zechariah returns home to Elizabeth and there, without words, he tries to explain to his wife all that has happened. And of course, in time, Elizabeth conceives and she becomes pregnant with John. And for five months, she keeps to herself, admiring that growing baby bump and quietly praising God for the favor that he has bestowed upon her. Then, of course, the time comes for the baby to be born. And on the eighth day, the family brings their child to the temple to be circumcised Everyone, of course, has an opinion on what the child should be named. I guess that was a communal task. I don't know. Most thought that Zechariah would be a good name for Zechariah's son. But Elizabeth, she's emphatic. No, his name is John. And those surrounding Zechariah and Elizabeth, they don't think that this is the right name for Zechariah's son. And, and so they ask Zechariah, and Zechariah asks for a tablet, and he writes in big, bold letters, his name is John. And then suddenly, Zachariah's tongue is loosened, and he begins praising God, saying, praise be to the Lord God of Israel. He has come to redeem his people. His name is John. The name John means the Lord has been gracious. What a fitting name for a boy born to, barren elderly, uh, to a barren elderly couple. The Lord has indeed been gracious to him, to them. 
And of course, John's mission will be much bigger than bringing joy to Zechariah and Elizabeth's household. Their gracious gift will also be a gracious gift to the people, for he will prepare them to meet their God. And he, will, he himself is a sign that, that, that God has remembered his covenant and that he's soon coming to deliver. Speaking of remembering the covenant, do you know what Zechariah's name means? It means the Lord has remembered. The Lord has remembered. The Lord has been gracious. In a way, the meaning of this little prequel is nicely summarized by the meaning of the names given to the main characters. The Lord has remembered, and the Lord has been gracious. Elizabeth's name is significant too, although it's a little bit more difficult to decipher the meaning of that name. There are two options. The Lord is my oath, and the Lord is abundance. Uh, It's kind of hard to figure out which one is right. But they both talk about this uh, trust, trusting God, trusting God for the future. And that, I think, is a fitting human response to the reality that God is gracious and God does not forget. And what I love so much about this text is that, is, the, is that the Lord is revealing both his covenant faithfulness and graciousness on a micro level and a macro level at the same time. Just like he did with Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, and with Hannah and Samuel too, as the Lord shows his faithfulness and graciousness to a particular family, he does so in such a way that the family becomes a blessing to the world. It's just amazing. The barren Elizabeth becomes the recipient of abundance, and at the same time, the barren world receives the one who will point towards the one who will bring hope. And all this happens quietly in the shadow of the Herodian, that castle that Herod built. As Herod labors to move a mountain and so builds up a name for himself, the Almighty quietly moves the womb of a poor, pious, elderly woman. Her son will prepare the way for the true king, not the wannabe king. The labor pains of the new creation are here. Let earth receive her king. And you know, as I think about this, I don't think that our times are all that different from the times of Zechariah and Elizabeth. The prequel may be over, but the sequel is still playing in local theaters. That's us, the church. We're the main characters in the ongoing drama of salvation. And as the world once waited for the birth of the Messiah, so the church of Jesus Christ on the far side of the resurrection awaits the return of our Lord and King. And like it was then, so it is today. These are confusing times. Trump has his name on towers all over the world. The Chinese government is extending its reach into Hong Kong. A few years ago, Putin annexed Crimea And you know he's not going to stop there. The battle for earth rages on. And we find ourselves in the midst of it, wondering, where's the true king? Where's the anointed one who has promised to return? Why isn't his kingdom advancing? Or we don't see it advancing all the time. Does he see? Does he know what's going on? Does he hear our prayers? 
Where's the power? So what do we do in these times between the times? Well, as characters written into the play, we wait, we work, and we gather for prayer. And we do so trusting that God is gracious and that he will not forget. And that is our hope this Advent. And who knows, he may even choose to work through our prayers and our emptiness and pain to bring about his kingdom joy and so transform the world. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, amen.